the future, I'm not part of the future, I'm part of the past, but anyway, it's a good <laughs> session to, to run. Uh, Nilo, Nilo Gunatilika, time to escape. Good afternoon. Uh, I have had the extraordinary, extraordinary <coughs> pleasure of working with Andrew from the early 2000s. We continue to work together to this day. Uh, during most of that time, uh, we have been working on the Charvi project. Now, for those of you who don't know it, Charvi was an NIH experiment. It stands for the Center of HIV AIDS Vaccine Immunology. And in truth, it actually took me till year three of Charvi to to work out what the acronym CHAVI stood for. Um, but really, it was an extraordinary opportunity that brought together HIV researchers across different disciplines to come together to address and hopefully answer outstanding questions of HIV immunobiology. Now, this was a seven-year, very large grant. It was highly controversial. And therefore, in the first few years of CHAVI, we were under extraordinary scrutiny, not only from our sponsors, but also from the rest of the field. Um, and during the early years of Chavi, um, which were very difficult, I think, uh, bringing together several hundred people, many of us had not met each other. Um, one dimension of Andrew's character um, stood firm, and that is Andrew McMichael's extraordinary skills at diplomacy that I think Sarah touched on earlier. Um, Andrew's ever-present, ever-knowing, ever-disarming smile that I think we all know, um, saw us through many tough times in the early years of Chavi. Um, and I think that was important because I think um, we've, it's come together quite well, though um, I'm probably not the best person to judge. It's, it's really the field. So what I will be discussing today is just one aspect. The aims and scope of Chavi were very broad, but what I will be discussing today is I think the work that's certainly closer to Andrew and my heart over the last seven years, which are studies of T-cell escape in HIV infection. Now, this field was created by a paper that has been mentioned a couple of times today, um, 21 years ago, by most of the people and several of the members of this room. This was a paper from Rodney and Andrew uh, and several other authors here. And it was the first description of the emergence of mutations or viral variants within T-cell epitopes that actually led to the subsequent loss of recognition in HIV. And as is previously mentioned, this was originally controversial, um, but has been uh, subsequently backed up by, I think, probably hundreds of papers. Um, this was a paper that created a field, which I think is extraordinary. Uh, and some, subsequent to that time, studies of T-cell escape have shown that it is a major driving force of HIV evolution that in selected cases, T-cell escape can be associated with AIDS progression and also loss of vaccine-induced control in the SIV macaque model. That was worked by Dan. Um, and also there is evidence, uh, particularly coming from Phil de Goulder's lab, that shows that T-cell escape can also impact the virus and have fitness costs. And why do we study escape? Well, it's really outlined up there. It's this concept that we can take advantage of the extraordinary diversity of HIV and it's the high replication recombination events that occurred to escape T-cell selection and use this as an in vivo measure of T-cell selection pressure in HIV immunology. Um, so in CHAVI, um, as I said, the scope was broad, but the flagship studies were about trying to understand the earliest virologic and immune events following HIV infection, with the underlying hypothesis that in HIV, as probably with many diseases, fate is set early. And those first events are highly deterministic of set point and subsequent disease progression. So a huge effort in Chavi was employed to identify patients 
in or around seroconversion and then very importantly follow them very closely over time. So in HIV as we see the virus increasing to peak viremia we see um, in most patients an initial virus load decline and then ultimate um, set point which is predictive of disease. These are the patients that we studied in Chavi. They were across um, sites within Africa and America so very diverse ethnic, gender and HLA backgrounds. Um, but importantly we had very detailed virologic and also sampling data um, for these patients. Why was that important for T cells? Well, for HIV, um, we are particularly interested in the primary expansion of CD8 T cells that occurs co coincident with a virus load decline in acute HIV infection. And these original observations made by Seth Barrow and Rick Kalp um, suggested that perhaps T cells were playing a role in initial virus control in HIV. The reason I put up this figure is I think it's one of Andrew's favourites. I've seen it on multiple of his talks over the years and I think it combines the holy trinity of HIV, CD8 T cells and tetramostaining. It was a, from a paper from a Jamie Wilson. So, um, so in Chavi um, we had samples in acute infection but with every infection and every viral infection, it begins with the virus. And really, I think those are the seminal studies in Chavi that were performed by Beatrice Hahn and George Shaw. What they did is they uh, took plasmas from patients around their peak viremia, and they sequenced individual viruses within those patients, and then they aligned them. And what was was observed was somewhat surprising. This is a highlighter plot that shows the sequences of in the individual viruses and what you can see is they're highly homologous with random uh, changes across the genome. When these sequences were analysed by Alan Powelson, the mathematical modeler, the only model that he could come up with or the best model that he could come up with to explain these observations was a model in which HIV infection was, despite the extraordinary diversity of HIV and the extraordinary milieu of HIV viruses that you would be exposed to at transmission, the only model that really explained this was that in the majority of individuals, and this is a situation they observed in about 80% of the patients tested, that in the majority of individuals, your HIV infection was actually founded by a single transmitted virus. Now, this had huge implications on T cell immunology because it meant for the first time we could study the entirety of the HIV virus. We knew our target, whereas previous studies in HIV had been limited to studying consensus peptide sets matched to the clade, or more often studying our favorite immunoprevalent epitope. Um, so it gave us greater options. Um, and so what we did then is we did at a great expense, synthesized peptides to match the transmitted founder virus within these patients and tried to look at the primary T cell response in relation to the evolution of the virus over time. And here we have virus sequencing over time in these patients and the red stripes indicate non-synonymous changes emerging. And one of the earliest observations made by the virologist is that um, these clustered mutations in HIV were emerging earlier and more rapidly than previously. Uh, known. And one of our questions was, was this a, a driven by T cell selection in HIV? This is an example of the type of data we um, observed within our patients. So uh, we used as a first line assay, Elispot, it's highly quantitative. Um, 
And uh, we mapped individual responses uh, across the proteome uh, for, against the transmitted virus within our patient. And we have a graph here showing individual T cell responses over time. And the vertical lines, which are color matched, green to green, indicate where time to 50% escape occurred. Um, and as you can see, T cell immunodominance hierarchies are established very early in HIV infection. And we observe shifting immunodominance as infection progresses. And this is very much affected by uh, virus escape and this was consistent with the original uh, predictions made by Martin Novak uh, with, with whom many of you have worked. The data that I'll be presenting today um, focuses on these primary T cell responses that we detect as the virus load is declining. The reason that we're doing that is one, we can align our patients in time, uh, so we, then we can look across a patient set and compare individuals. But secondly, we're looking at T cells prior to establishing a set point and prior to establishing chronicity and perhaps um, virus-driven dysfunction of CD8 T cells and acute infection. So the first observation that we made, uh, that we published a few years ago now, was uh, we looked at those very early emerging stripes across the virus genome, and we asked a simple question, were these selected by T cells? And in the majority of cases, they were. And why this was important was previous observations from available data, and it wasn't that the studies were done poorly, they just didn't have access to this, the, the sequence data or the frequency of sampling within patients. Um, previous uh, sub, uh, studies had suggested that CD8 T cells in HIV killed about 2 to 4 percent of infected CD4 targets a day. When we used exactly the same models with these data, um, it suggested that T cells could be contributing as much as 30 percent of the killing of individual of infected CD4 targets a day. So T cells were in acute HIV infection as that primary virus load was declining, exerting significant selection pressure on the virus. And indeed our more recent data suggests that in some patients this percentage <coughs> could be as great as 50 percent. So that was very interesting and has been repeated by other labs um, in uh, both HIV infection and also SIV infection. But what we were particularly interested in um, was the fact that not only did we see early rapid escape occurring across our patient data set, as indicated by the pink stripes, um, and early rapid escape, I would mention, was not predictive of subsequent set point. We also, at the same time, observed um, T cells that arose in primary infection that were selecting escape far more slowly. And so we were seeing differential rates of virus escape from T cells that arose at the same stage in HIV infection. And when we just spin this into 50-day windows and do a histogram of time to 50% escape, what we see is in primary infection, we see an extraordinary amount of escape happening, but very importantly, we also see a very long tail. And certainly there were some T cell epitopes that remained a variant um, for three, uh, up to three years, and that was really the window of study for our patients. We looked to see if our data were consistent with previous reports, and they were. The earliest T cell responses were targeting what had previously described as very immunogenic proteins, such as NAF, OMV, and GAG. Um, and across the board, we did see evidence of escape occurring at the protein level, um, and particularly more so in NAF. And so we have these kinds of data, but the benefit that we had was we also had the ability to map our individual T cell responses and map them fully within our situation. And so what we looked at first, and we asked the question, we're seeing patients, they're aligned in time, they, um, we have detailed virus escape data, and we're seeing differential rates of escape. So our question was, if escape is an in vivo measure of select T cell selection pressure, can we explain the factors 
that are deterministic of differential rates of escape. So our first uh, questions were simply to ask the, the question of does magnitude associate with time to escape? And so the way we analyzed our data were using Cox proportional hazard models. So we were essentially asking how long does our T-cell epitope survive? Um, and so this, this, this is where the real data, uh, the detailed data are, but it's, it's far easier in um, these kinds of uh, survival plots. And what we see is a simple thing. If you increase the magnitude of your T-cell response, you get more rapid escape. Lower magnitude, slow escape. And that makes sense and it's quite sensible. The other way we looked at our data is to try and normalize our data across our patients. As those of you who work in humans and work on frozen cells, you will have some patients where you see extremely high T-cell frequencies all the time when you map and you have some that you see low. So we actually then calculated percentage magnitude so we could look at our data across the cohort so that it was um, and we expressed our data as unstratified as strat patient stratified uh, and so the other thing about percentage magnitude is it gives you additional information it gives you information on relative rank of your t-cell responses within your system a percentage magnitude of 80 percent versus 20 for example and as, uh, as we increase percentage magnitude or relative T-cell immunodominance, again, we saw the same thing. We, saw, we observed uh, far more rapid escape. So it's quite nice. It would make sense from the original mouse world. If you increase the frequency of your T-cell response, if you increase the uh, immunodominance of your T-cell response in a human system, you achieve more rapid escape. The next question we asked was breath. Um, and in our system, in acute infection, the breath of the response is typically quite narrow, but there is a range. And we looked to see whether breath impacted time to escape at a subject level. Um, and it did. As you increased breath, escape was more slow. And one thing I would mention, though, is, and which is particularly important, I think, for future vaccine strategies, is that breath comes at the cost of immunodominance. If you increase your breath, you are impacting or skewing your T-cell immunodominance. And certainly, whilst breath was an individual um, covariate of time to escape, it was also correlated to percentage magnitude within our system. Um, there's been extraordinary interest in looking at qualitative differences between T-cells in the field, particularly over the f last um, five or ten years. So we asked, uh, were there any qualitative differences? So within a patient, if we have dominant and subdominant T-cell responses, they're selecting escape at different rates. Are there any qualitative differences between these T-cell responses? And certainly with regard to the functional measurements um, of perform production, or cytokine production, we didn't see any difference. So we had covariates of um, oh, certainly T-cell measures that were correlating with time to escape in our data set. But the other um, factor that in can impact the rate of virus escape in our system is not only the external T-cell pr pressure recognizing and driving down the transmitted found virus, it's also about the ability of the mutants to emerge. And that brings into bear question fitness costs of the mutants that emerge over time. And you would expect that if you had a very high fitness cost of a mutant emerging, that could slow the time to escape. And so we were looking for a measure of fitness, which is not such an easy thing to do in, in the field. And 
What we uh, looked at with Betty Corber and others had done it previously is we looked at epitope entropy. So for those of you who don't know it, entropy is actually a mathematical model that I think comes from the world of linguists and langu various languages. It came from a paper in 1948. And entropy is essentially a measure of population diversity. So in HIV we have the benefit that there's been an extraordinary amount of population level sequencing of HIV and so we can look at the level of diversity over time. Um, and so high entropy relates to extraordinary population diversity, low entropy at a population level the sequences are more conserved. So we um, asked can we use the entropy of the T-cell epitope as a surrogate measure of fitness uh, and when we put that into our system entropy again uh, was uh, significantly correlated with time to escape so a low entropy epitope escaped more slowly an epitope that was more conserved at a population level a high entropy epitope escaped more rapidly. Um, we looked at other covariates for example um, uh, this was a very mixed group of people we um, Factors such as age and clay uh, and gender did not in, uh, affect time to escape and importantly uh, restriction by a protective HL allele was not associated with time to escape nor was restriction by uh, the GAG protein. We then asked the question how do these factors really relate together so we performed multivariate analysis. Our first question was how do measures of T-cell pressure driving down the virus and then measures of um, fitness which affect the rate at which the mutants can emerge work together to explain our model and do these two, do these various parameters work together to produce a better fit of time to escape and they did. If we looked at a model of absolute magnitude at entropy um, together they produced a very nice p-value in subject stratified data. Um, we then asked the next question I mentioned earlier that percentage magnitude provides a additional information to absolute magnitude. It gives us information on immunodominance and relative rank within our system. So our question was, is it all about absolute magnitude of the T-cell response or does its relative rank also play a role? Um, and so we added percentage magnitude to our model and asked, does it improve the fit of the model? And it did. Uh, it added significantly to a model of uh, absolute magnitude and entropy. We then just ask, can we simplify? And what, is the, what are the parameters that produce the best fit? Um, and actually a model of just percentage magnitude and entropy work together to provide the kind of p-value, this, so this is a human system, human measurements, and where as uh, these two come together in a cost-proportional hazard model using multivariate analysis, we're getting p-values of 10 to minus 8. These are highly and very significantly associated covariates of time to escape. I would mention, as I mentioned earlier, that breath, which was, which was inversely correlated to immunodominance, did not improve this model of percentage magnitude and entropy. Um, we then tried to test our model um, and break it down essentially, it was 10 to the minus 8 something that was spurious. So we tested the robustness of our model and asked questions if we had variation in our time to escape and we de deliberately included it in that, our system. Um, did that impact um, our model and did we lose significance? We used multiple implementation methods to look at that and the model remained um, highly significant. Um, we then looked primarily, I think, in answer to um, questions from reviewers. We tried to put our data in perhaps a more palatable, 
way. And the question was, well, okay, percentage magnitude, immunodominance, and epitope entropy are highly significantly, work together highly significantly to explain a model of time to escape. But how much of the variation in time to escape did either one of those two parameters explain? And so um, we were doing something equivalent to an R squared analysis in the Cox proportional ma uh, hazard model. Uh, and what we found is that the simple measurement of percentage magnitude or immunodominance could explain almost 40% of the variance of time to escape in our human patients, in our human patients, in our patients even. Um, and uh, entropy itself explained a lower percentage of 10%, but still I think a, quite a significant proportion. And together, um, just two parameters were able to explain almost 50% in our variation in time to escape. Um, the question would be, what um, is that other 50%? One of uh, the points we would make is that epitope entropy is a surrogate measure of fitness. We think it's an inadequate measure. It really refers to the variation within the epitope, but we know certainly that sequences, for example, the presence of compensatory mutations outside the epitope would also uh, necessarily impact the ability of an epitope to escape. So we're now working with Arup Chakraborty at MIT um, to use not uh, models from linguists, um, but models from the stockbroking world to try and improve this as models of fitness. And so we're hoping we could up the, the number even more so from 50%. Um, so that was just a flavour of some of the work that we're doing and Andrew continues to do at Oxford. Um, the reason we think that this is quite nice is, is that it's simple. Um, and what it's showing is that T-cell immunodominance, as has been previously described and taught to us from several of you in this room, uh, that is central to antiviral immunity in mice, is also central to T-cell selection <coughs> pressure in humans, in a situation where every individual has a different HLA background, but even more so every individual is infected with a different sequence of HIV virus. Um, the implication of these um, data we think are quite interesting. For example, in immunogen design or T-cell vaccine design, one of the things or points we'd want to make is when you vaccinate an individual with the T-cell vaccine, you will necessarily induce an immunodominance hierarchy. And if you have, for example, this being propounded by many people, uh, a strategy to go for extraordinary breath, are you going to go for extraordinary breath at the expense of immunodominance within your system? So, well, these are more discussions for dinner. Um, this was really just a flavor of the type of work that Andrew continues to do. Um, we talk about uh, Andrew driving forward human immunology and detailed human immunology, and I think this is an example of that. Um, this is part of the Chavi network, very detailed studies, but that involve an extraordinary number of people, which I won't be able to go through today, but we have a fantastic team here at Oxford. Um, what I would like to say on a personal note is for the last seven years, I've had the extraordinary honor of spending probably two, three hours a week with Andrew, just talking science. And it has been extraordinarily productive, but more than anything else, it's been fun. Um, so I thank you for that, Andrew. But I would just say that whilst we're talking about today being a retirement symposium, Andrew is actually um, leading through the next stage of Chavi over the next seven years. Um, I, <laughs> um, I, I don't doubt that that will be extraordinarily successful, but I hope, Andrew, it's also extraordinarily fun. Thank you.